Shortly after noon, on April 27th, after the people of Pripyat had been absorbing dangerous radiation for over 36 hours, the Soviet military gave the order to evacuate. Over loudspeakers, residents were told to get ready to leave. They were instructed to carry no more than a single bag of luggage with enough clothes for three days. As helicopters buzzed overhead, heading towards the remains of Reactor Building 4, and residents formed up in a queue towards the evacuation transport, many of them suspected that they would never return. That afternoon, over 30,000 people were evacuated in just over three hours. They were taken to a safe zone 32 kilometers away from the power plant. In the coming days, as the levels of radiation continued to rise, the safe zone would be extended even more. Surprisingly, despite what had taken place over the 26th and 27th, the world at large barely realized that something was happening at Chernobyl. This was largely because of Viktor Brukhanov's actions. His quick actions with the military, while they could have backfired and ignited speculation, were instead favored by the size of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was so large that information literally took weeks to disseminate. This was before the internet, obviously. Government control also curtailed the spread of information. For example, on the 27th, Soviet leaders prevented a government newspaper by the name of Izvestia from publishing the information. While the Soviet government tried to keep the information from spreading, they couldn't do anything about the radiation. Carried by strong winds, a massive radioactive cloud moved northwest, raining radioactive particles over millions of square kilometers. The Soviet republics of Russia, Belarus, and Georgia received high amounts of nuclear fallout. The radiation didn't stop at the USSR's borders though. It went on to poison Poland, Sweden, Finland, and even Norway. Eventually, all of the northern hemisphere would receive noticeably larger amounts of radiation. It wasn't anything serious, it was just an elevated amount of background radiation. From what we can tell from the destroyed core, the deadly cloud of radiation contained vaporized graphite and uranium fuel. Within two days of the explosion, plutonium, one of the most toxic substances known to man, was floating above the heads of unsuspecting individuals. Uranium wasn't even the worst of it. There was also iodine-131, strontium-90, and cesium-13. Now, let's talk about the experiences of one Andrei Belakon, a man who was one of the few doctors at Pripyat's only hospital. Upon hearing about the accident, Andrei rushed to the power plant so he could administer first aid to the injured workers and firefighters. More than 100 beds were set up in a room at the plant, so most of the severely injured could be treated there before being rushed to the hospital where a radiation quarantine unit was set up. All that was in theory because by the time Andre showed up, he quickly discovered that both the first aid station and the medical supply room were closed. No nurse or other healthcare provider was on duty at the time. Even to administer to everyday injuries that people receive while working in a place with heavy equipment. After he showed up, Andre came across some plant workers who were so severely burned that their skin was no longer in contact with their bodies. There was little he could do for such people, as he later stated in an interview. Quote, they brought in a chap complaining of nausea and a severe headache 
and he had begun vomiting. He worked in the third reactor and, it seems, had gone to the fourth. I took his blood pressure. It was on 40 or 150 over 90, a little high. Then he rose quickly and the chap became delirious. I took him to the ambulance. He became delirious before my very eyes. He showed symptoms of confusion, couldn't speak, and began to mumble as if he'd had a drink or two, although he didn't smell of alcohol. He was very pale. It was already too late, and could. By the morning of the 26th, everyone who had been in the control room during the infamous midnight shift, including Alexander Akimov, Anatoly Dyatlov, and Leonid Toptunov, were dizzy and vomiting. Luckily for them, a shuttle bus had arrived and was transporting the injured to the hospital in Pripyat. In all, more than 120 workers used the bus. Dr. Anatoly Ben, another doctor at Pripyat's hospital, had been tending to the burns and radiation poisoning of the workers and firefighters since before dawn, as his shift aligned with that of the midnight shift. At 5 a.m. local time, Sasha Yuvchenko was brought in. Sasha was complaining of nausea and a strange taste in his mouth. Anatoly Ben, while examining his body for any physical injuries, noticed deep radiation burns on Yuvchenko's arms and wondered if he might have to amputate them. Yuvchenko, however, didn't seem to realize how grave his injuries were because, even while being examined, he repeatedly asked if he was okay to go home. Unfortunately, he was highly radioactive. Like the others in the vicinity of the control room, he was assigned to the large dormitory area on the top floor of the hospital, where he received an intravenous drip of fluids and antibiotics to prevent his wounds from becoming infected. As word of the disaster began to spread into Pripyat, the families of those who had been taken to the hospital rushed to check on their condition. At first, they weren't worried because many of the workers who had received large doses of radiation were exhibiting few outward symptoms other than dizziness and a metallic taste in their mouths. Their only point of concern was the fact that all of those workers had to be quarantined. Because they had not been taught by the government, few residents of Pripyat and even the workers knew the dangers that they faced. In fact, because they had been told that nuclear reactors were exceedingly safe, many people believed that radiation poisoning could be cured with simple folk remedies. As a result, many of the people visiting their loved ones brought cucumbers, fresh milk, and mineral water to the hospital. Eating the vegetables or drinking the milk or water was widely believed to cure radiation poisoning. Unsurprisingly, vodka was also thought to cure radiation poisoning. One nurse in particular supplied 50 ml of vodka to each firefighter. Although most claimed to feel better after they drank, it soon became apparent that alcohol amplified the effects of the radiation poisoning. On April 28, 1986, researchers in Sweden began to suspect that something was amiss. Early on that Monday morning, nuclear technicians at the Forsmark nuclear power plant 96 kilometers north of Stockholm, Sweden, received warning signals at their monitoring stations. The readings indicated extremely high levels of radiation. At first, the Swedish scientists suspected that the problem was in their own reactors 
and they began emergency procedures to check all operations. When all the reactors were deemed to be operating safely, the scientists used Geiger counters to test more than 600 workers at the plant for exposure. Again, the levels came back extremely high. Radioactive readings from the workers' clothing far exceeded contamination levels. Geiger counter readings from the soil and greenery surrounding the plant also showed 45 times the normal amount of radioactive emissions. It was quite obvious that a nuclear disaster had occurred, but no one knew when or where. I thought we'd look at the part of the story concerning Sweden because they were the first country to detect high levels of radiation coming from Ukraine. To the northeast, spring snow was falling over parts of Finland, from there to Norway and Denmark, all the way to southeast Europe. The same readings were soon recorded. Soon, experts reached the consensus that somewhere in Europe, massive amounts of radioactivity was entering the atmosphere and settling on people, plants, and animals. To find out where it was coming from, they began working off a checklist. After eliminating all sources in Sweden, the experts reached a horrifying conclusion. There had been a meltdown in the neighboring Soviet Union. Meteorologists examining the wind patterns verified the fears of many people. Throughout the weekend, high-altitude air currents had been blown northwest from the Black Sea across Ukraine over the Baltic states and into Scandinavia. Those winds were now carrying radioactive particles from Ukraine into Scandinavia and the rest of Western Europe. Nevertheless, even after Swedish officials insisted that a nuclear accident had taken place, Soviet officials denied any knowledge. They chose to stick to party principles, despite knowing that millions of people were being exposed to potentially lethal levels of radioactivity. For Mikhail Gorbachev, Chernobyl could not have happened at a worse time. For one, he had only been in power for 13 months, and although he had won the elections on the promise of openness, or glasnost as it was referred to in the Soviet Union, he had yet to fulfill that promise. He had just realized that you couldn't change such an aging, corrupt, and inefficient system overnight. Sure, he had campaigned on the promise of openness, but the Soviet system had been closed for so long that it didn't know how to be open. For these and other reasons, when the news of Chernobyl finally made it to Moscow, he was caught between two factions. The old Moscow, made up of people who had been in power for decades. People who wanted the Soviet Union to remain as secretive as it had always been. These politicians did not want to open their country up to criticism from the West. They believed that Chernobyl should be kept in-house and that the country could deal with everything on its own. The other faction was Gorbachev's own. The people who believed that keeping Chernobyl in-house would go against everything they believed in. It would go against Glasnost. They also insisted that the Soviet Union needed help. It was clearly beyond the capabilities of the Soviet scientists to deal with the problem, or so they claimed. If it had been the old Soviet Union, they would have found themselves in the Gulag and most likely ended up in front of a firing squad for saying such treasonous things, but clearly, even in 1986, the power of the Soviet Union 
was fading. The old politicians couldn't accept this, and the new, well, even they weren't brave enough to state the obvious. After several days of debate between the two factions, it was agreed that a brief announcement would be made to the Soviet people. Finally, at about 9am on Monday, April 28th, the Soviet government announced the accident on national television. The announcement in full stated, quote, An accident has taken place at the Chernobyl power plant. One of the reactors was damaged. Measures are being taken to eliminate the consequences of the accident. Those affected by it are being given assistance. A government commission has been set up, end quote. On Tuesday, an amateur radio operator in the Netherlands reported receiving a message from a ham operator near Chernobyl. According to the Dutch, the Soviet contact claimed that a reactor was burning and that many hundreds were dead and wounded. He went on to say, quote, We heard heavy explosions. You can't imagine what's happening here. I'm here 32 kilometers from it and, in fact, I don't know what to do. I don't know if our leaders know what to do because this is a real disaster. Please tell the world to help us. End quote. Now, I don't know how credible that Dutch report was. The only thing I've been able to find out is that this unconfirmed, highly speculative report was widely carried by the international mainstream media and was broadcast literally everywhere in the West. Even after that broadcast, Soviet officials hesitated to ask for outside help for fear of revealing the true extent of what happened at Chernobyl. On Tuesday, April 29th, a scientist from the Soviet embassy in Bonn, West Germany, appeared unannounced and without an appointment at the Bonn office of the Atom Forum. The Atom Forum at the time was in charge of West Germany's nuclear power operations. The Soviet official asked the scientists at the Atom Forum if the Germans could advise his country on the best methods for extinguishing a graphite fire, and specifically if there was anyone in Germany who knew how to put out a graphite fire in a nuclear reactor core. A similar behind-the-scenes request was made the same day to the Swedish nuclear authority. Again, I have to reiterate, I have no idea how credible that is, because as we learned from the previous episode, Valery Legasov already knew how to put out the fire. It wouldn't make sense that on the 27th they had a strategy that had a high chance of success. Then, on the 29th, they were busy looking for another. I don't know. I'm not an expert or anything, but I still find it surprising. In hindsight, we know that Valery Legasov was right. So maybe back then, the Soviets weren't so sure, which would be completely understandable. Despite this ominous request, the Soviets still refused to discuss exactly what had happened at the Chernobyl power plant. Hearing of the requests, the US government stepped forward and offered to help, and the Soviet government said, no thanks, obviously. They assured them that the situation was under control. At the same time that all this was going on, helicopters in Chernobyl were flying round the clock missions, dumping sand on the burning graphite. While all this was happening, the Soviet government stepped up its campaign of misinformation. 
they suggested that the event was minor and that it had already been taken care of. In Kiev, a radio announcement claimed that only two people had been killed and without doing any tests whatsoever, the authorities claimed that drinking water in Kiev and Pripyat was safe to drink. While the Soviet government was lying to its citizens, Europe was pissed. Sweden's energy minister at the time, Bajita Dahl, demanded that the whole Soviet civilian nuclear program be subject to international control. In West Germany, the foreign minister at the time insisted that Moscow shut down all of its RBMK reactors. Most of that anger actually stemmed from fear. People were afraid. They didn't know whether they had been exposed to radiation or not. Poland, which relied on some power from Chernobyl, had to contend with fearful citizens after its scientists announced that they had measured elevated levels of radioactivity in the air. Despite all that fear, Polish health officials went on to predict a sharp increase in cancer cases for 30 years. A claim that has come under fire in recent decades, especially because even at the time of this recording, the results are still inconclusive. A Polish citizen would go on to tell Time magazine, quote, We can understand an accident. It could happen to anyone. But that the Soviets said nothing and let our children suffer exposure to this cloud for days is unforgivable. End quote. While the fear of radioactivity was reasonable, the failure of the Soviets to reveal the details of what happened at Chernobyl created a level of fear in Europe last seen during the Second World War. In Oslo, Norway, callers flooded the emergency phone lines at the State Institute for Radiation Hygiene after hearing false reports of an invisible radiation cloud over the most densely populated part of the country. Despite assurances from officials that the radiation levels were too low in most areas to pose a health hazard, fear and misinformation spread like radioactive fallout. As a psychologist in Norway explained, quote, we experience a danger that we cannot see and cannot register with any of our other senses. And that leads people to be worried and afraid, end quote. The crazy thing about that explanation is that it explains COVID-19 fear and misinformation. As alarm fueled by fear, misinformation and rumors spread around the world, the news media of the world began to practice yellow journalism. They began broadcasting unverified reports claiming that as many as 3,000 people had died. Britain and the US advised all diplomatic staff living in Kiev to leave the country. On May 1st, 1986, the New York Times stated, quote, To the world outside, Almost as striking as the nuclear accident that sent radioactive debris over hundreds of miles was the Soviet effort to restrict information about it. End quote. When Gorbachev received word on the 6th of May 1986 that the reactor fire had been smothered at last, he decided to address the world. On May 14th, he appeared on national TV to give a brief speech. His remarks were broadcast around the world. Gorbachev spoke solemnly about the accident, an accident that his government had refused to admit to just a few days earlier. This time, he told the entire planet, quote, 
The accident at the Chernobyl nuclear plant has painfully affected the Soviet people and shocked the international community. For the first time, we confront the real force of nuclear energy out of control. End quote. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked my narration, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. You should also consider donating on patreon.com slash societyofstrife. It really helps the show out. Until next time, goodbye.